Welcome back to the Functional Spirituality Show. I'm your host, Ava Arani, and today we're getting into part one of the Mind Work series, which is going to be explaining the setup of our mind. So there's a few different ways that we can approach this. I'm going to share about the triune model of the brain, which most of you will be familiar with, as well as the subconscious and conscious mind theories. And then we're going to end on an explanation of our map of reality. So very often the brain is equated to the mind, which totally makes sense. We can intuit or unconsciously feel and sense that our thoughts appear in the mind's eye up in the forehead or in our heads. So it makes sense that we would equate our mind with the brain. However, as I mentioned in the introduction, the brain doesn't really equate to the mind. It's definitely a part of the hardware for how our mind is set up to both sense and interpret our experience as well as act in or motor through the world. So really with our mind we have to understand that there's both hardware and software. So there are structures that are set in place and there are um, programs that run within that hardware which um, dictate how we experience and navigate through our lives. And the hardware and the software of the human being are our nervous system, basically. It's an imperfect system. It's a product of nature. It's not, um, it hasn't been set up for how, for the desires and the wishes that the mind has now. So it's been set up as an evolutionary mechanism and it it was built for survival. And as the environment changes, the where we live and how we live changes, the technology, the interface, the hardware for moving through that environment may need to be upgraded. We cannot um, rely on our brains and our nervous systems and then this overall um, mind that we experience. We cannot expect it to be bug-proof. We do need to run updates. We do need to install the correct software to navigate our lives in the way that we consciously choose to. And why? This is all the case. Hopefully will become clear as we start to look at these different theories and models of how the brain and the mind work. So we're going to start with the triune model of the brain, which was discovered by Dr. Paul McLean. I actually have a quote from him that I'd like to start with. He says, the brain always stands between us and a situation. And to me, that's a pretty helpless state and a lonely one. So pretty grim with Dr. Paul to start, but we all are familiar. Most of us are familiar with his model of the triune brain, which says that the brain is made up of three parts. And like anything with anatomy, with medicine, these are models and theories So he breaks up the brain 
into the mammalian, the reptilian, and the new brain, the cortex. However, there are other models and other theories. Maybe you've heard about bilateral theories of brain that say that the brain is actually best broken up into two parts, into its left and its right half. It's something that we tend to do as Westerners where we listen to the scientists breaking up the body or the environment into different categories and we assume that to be to have more of a truth than it actually does. It's actually just a theory. It's just a system, a way of understanding. The brain isn't actually made of three. You know, I always say this when we're talking about anatomy in our teacher training courses, that just because we can speak about a circulatory system and a respiratory system, these are arbitrary arbitrary categories that have been used to break down the whole into ways of understanding its parts, but they don't actually hold any absolute significance. They're just ways of understanding it. And we're going to always love to break down the bigger picture into smaller bites so that we can understand the pieces in ways that are meaningful and relevant to us. And I love this way of breaking down the brain into three parts. So let's start with the reptilian brain. And so we've got the reptilian brain, the mammalian brain, and the cortex. And the reptilian brain and the mammalian brain together make up the old brain. And that makes up almost 80% of the brain's mass where the new brain is the cortex and it makes up a small amount of the brain capacity. I have in some old notes that the old brain makes up uh, 92% of the brain's capacity. So it's just enough to say that the old brain makes up a significant percentage of our overall brain mass and capacity. So the reptilian brain developed around 250 million years ago and it's the part of our brain that we share with reptiles. It's found predominantly in the brain stem so you may be familiar with the hypothalamus, the pituitary, the midbrain and it's the part of our brain that is responsible for homeostasis. Homeostasis is that optimal range within which the many operations that the human body functions should be operating within to be optimal for the whole system. So things like temperature, hormone distribution, blood pressure, heartbeat, as well as a variety of other measures, blood sugar, and so on. So it's like our basic survival mechanisms that keep the human body functioning and able to continue to live and navigate through its environment. So the reptilian brain is predominantly concerned with homeostasis and on a psychological or emotional level, it's really just motivated for survival. So the reptilian brain has evolved for survival. It doesn't have any of those higher operations, so it doesn't 
learn from experience. It just repeats the same behavior, the basic behavior that it needs for survival. It doesn't have feelings or emotions usually related to it. It's more about just controlling those basic functions necessary for life, like heart rate, as I mentioned, heart rate, breathing, fighting, fleeing, feeding, and reproduction. It's made up of routines, so master routines and subroutines. So the kind of routines and instincts that it would have um, based on different environmental factors that might appear. So a threat appears, it'll have a routine or a response that it'll have against a threat. If there's food present or something desirable that it needs, it'll have some responses based on the things that it needs to move towards and the things that it needs to move away from. So it really delights in following routines and mimicking routines. And now in our uh, modern lives, we can understand the reptilian brain being responsible for us to do those automatic tasks like entering in PIN numbers, things that need to be repeated or done automatically in a subconscious way all day long, being able to drive a car. All these tasks that can be relegated to a routine have been and are operating through the reptilian brain. So it's not the part of our brain that questions why we do the tasks or why we believe that knowledge or why we follow that way of life. It's not a creative, but it's a repetitive function and really provides the stability and the support for us to exist and navigate the environment and survive in our bodies in this world. So that was the reptilian brain formed around 250 million years ago, functioning inside of our brainstem, our hypothalamus, and regulating our really basic survival functions, and which we share with a lot of the animal kingdom that are doing the same thing. They're navigating their lives, they're eating, they're feeding, they're protecting themselves, they're reproducing. A lot of nature, a lot of animals we see have these functions. The next is the mammalian brain, which evolved 50 million years ago, and it influences the reptilian hypothalamic function, and it's mostly considered to be located within the limbic system, so the amygdala and its surrounding structures, the parts of our brain that are related to emotions, memories. It doesn't actually communicate through words, but its characteristics are feelings, emotions, and it's distinguished from the reptilian part of the brain with the, so the kind of big leap here is the nurturing capacity and also the way that it compels us to tend and care for the young. So maybe you are aware of those stories and the realities of, of reptiles eating their babies, where with a mammalian um, within a mammalian framework and this type of function, it is actually more prone to maternal nursing, to care, to play, and to the evolution of the family. This is an, an evolution in some ways because the way the family works is it offers knowledge and learning in a new environment where knowledge and experience is passed directly from 
the parents or from the elders to the children through this kind of family network and environment leading to the development of the young quicker because they're learning directly from a transmission from the elders. So the mammalian brain is a little bit more sophisticated, we could say, in its emotional capacity and its desire to care, to nurture, and to, and to play. However, the mammalian and the reptilian brain together make up the old brain. And just to jump the gun a little bit when we speak about the mind, the reptilian and the mammalian brain functions that we've just described are very much what relate to the subconscious mind. So when we speak about the third brain, it's a very, very small percentage of the brain's operating potential as well as its mass, and that's the cortex or the new brain. And compared to 250 and 50 million years ago, this brain, according to Jung, developed and evolved only 40,000 years ago, and it's still evolving. And this brain, this part of our brain, the human brain, the cortex, develops inside humans between the ages of 3 and 20 years and is usually finished developing around 20 to 25 years inside the human being. Whereas the mammalian brain and the reptilian brain are fully functioning at birth. So the capacity for homeostasis and those survival instincts, we're born with them. They're necessary for survival, where the cortex and its functions really are like an add-on and are like the cherry on top of the cake of our evolution. These higher functions, which allow us to learn quicker and adapt to our environment better. So it evolutionary, evolutionarily has expanded in vertebrates, mammals, and humans. And of course, it's connected to the other centers. But this is really where we get that language center and our ability to invent the future. That late development of the cortex is one of the reasons that we have so many negative and counterproductive programs in our subconscious minds, because when that emotional and subconscious part of our brain was developing in the earlier years of our lives, we didn't have that cortex, which is the rational, mature, conscious mind, to filter out negative programs and to select positive ones that we might need as an adult. Of course, that wasn't functioning when we were developing and setting up these programs in our subconscious mind, the conscious mind wasn't online yet. So to make matters worse, we're now not even aware of most of these programs because they were developed at such an early age that we don't have conscious memory of them. So the conscious mind analyzes the problems and is always seeking for solutions, rational solutions, but often without the vaguest idea of what's actually taking place in the old brain, in the subconscious mind, which is governed by non-rational feeling. So this is a really good entry point for us to start speaking about the subconscious and conscious mind, which is one of the most popular theories of how the mind works. And I love how it so easily transfers over and relates to the model of the old brain and the new brain, where the old brain is responsible for about 92% of the 
of the mind's capacity and functions and the new brain and the conscious mind is responsible for such a small percent percentage of the mind's functions and working capacity and um, electrical power and all of those things and a really popular image for this is the image of the iceberg so if you imagine the tip of the iceberg being a really small mass and then the huge body of the iceberg being submerged underneath the surface of the water that would be referring to the subconscious mind it's a freudian image to show that what we are consciously aware of in terms of our thoughts and mental processes are such a small percentage compared to this huge mass of functions and processing and um, potential of our mind that is operating underneath the surface. So our conscious mind is everything that we're aware of, all of the thoughts, the words, the part of the mind that we're aware of when we're awake in our daily life. So it's the creative part of our mind that addresses the future and the present moment through problem solving. So it's creative in the fact that it actually creates a future to solve. So it creates potentials. It even creates a representation of this moment through the thoughts. It creates intentions and it controls all of the voluntary functions and all of the conscious decision making that we make. And we might also say that it's our sense of individual will. Where the subconscious mind, we are not aware of it in the same way that we're aware of the conscious rational thinking activity. But definitely we are aware, we can be aware of the subconscious mind in the form, the more that we can be sensitive to our intuition, our beliefs, our feelings, and those instinctual impulses that we sense under the surface of the conscious mind. So a lot of people would argue that we cannot know what's in our subconscious mind, but we cannot know it in the same way, not with the same language centers and with the same words as we do the rational thinking activity. We can still know, we can be aware of our feelings, our instincts, and more and more as we become aware of our mind, we refine our capacity and we strengthen our focus and our intuition, more and more we can be aware of our patterns and our beliefs and our unconscious tendencies and we see the way that this part of our mind is manifesting in our lives because in many ways the foundation, this hardware of our subconscious mind is apparent in how we're perceiving our world which we'll talk much more about that shortly so the subconscious mind is so interesting it has this enormous processing power it's responsible for trillions of functions at once so it's the part of our nervous system that's regulating everything like we said all of the homeostasis the fact that you're pupils are dilating and your eyelids are blinking and your fallopian tubes are processing or moving an egg down or the way that your nostrils are filtering air in some ways and your how your digestive processes are working and how 
all of these functions of your body, just even your physical body are, are being processed. It's all happening at once. And it's all due to the intelligence and the programs and the instincts that are set up in our nervous system from birth and also in these formative years from zero to seven that is is very often spoken about where the subconscious mind is most susceptible and it's it's born ready to be programmed so that it can function and survive in our environment so the subconscious mind really has the power it's got 25 watts it controls all of our impulses emotions twitches urges in very many ways people refer to it as being inexhaustible so it's always functioning and it's also effortless. So the power really lies inside the subconscious mind. It has its programs and it runs them automatically. Whether those programs have bugs in them or they're not the most efficient, it will run them and it will continue to run them. Whereas the conscious mind has the will. It's that smaller part of our, our awareness that has its own individual sense of will, its own intentions, it's got its goals. And we might be seeing there that difference between the will and the power. So willpower comes from somehow aligning the will of the conscious mind to the power of the subconscious mind. So anything that the subconscious mind adopts and takes on, it has this immense power. In a yogic way, we might even say it's got the power of the universe, the universal intelligence, the universal energy the universal power is running. It's nature itself that's running your body. So your mind and your thoughts and your wishes aren't running your body. It's nature itself. It's the power of the universe. It's the nature of the universe to multiply cells and to digest in a certain way and to um, diffuse liquids and to diffuse matter. So the intelligence and the power of nature is running your body and it's inexhaustible. It always functions and it's effortless. It doesn't take any personal will to do that. However, the personal will, we might have a, a way that we want nature and our body to function in a different way or we want our experience to function in a different way. And there are ways or at least this is what we're interested in is how can we match up the conscious will, the thoughts and the intentions and goals that we have to the power there because there's no way that just the thoughts about it and, and your wishes and your desires will have the power to actually overcome nature. You want to align them together. So we're going to leave it here for part one after looking at the structures of the brain and the different theories of the mind. So it should really just be obvious that the human being is an animal. We have a nervous system, we have a brain that has been built for homeostasis and for adaptability and for keeping us alive. So the predominant structures and functions of our brain and of our mind are to keep us alive. So we wonder why we're very often in that kind of animalistic fear mode and how we so quickly resort to um to worry and to and to fear and to those survival instincts it's because our predominant structures of our experience are are built around keeping us alive so it is normal for us to feel that way 
However, there are those structures in our brain that have evolved more in the last 40,000 years or so, the new brain, the cortex, and the resulting conscious part of our mind, which is a really sophisticated evolution nature has played with that expands our capacity for adaptability. So this is our capacity to question and to inquire and to have different intentions as the human being explores different environments and different domains of experience. To be able to adapt there, there needs to be that conscious, rational reflection and the inquiry. And this is something that we are most familiar with as it is the conscious mind and it's the part of the mind that's listening now and it's the part of the mind that is the most exciting to our whole system because it's inventive and imaginative and it uses words and it understands the environment through language and through a very sophisticated way an individual way our individual perspectives and wills and goals and intentions so it's very interesting to us and it's what we attribute our entire experience to usually is is what's going on inside of our conscious mind and in our next series our next episode we're going to speak about um, the map of reality and how this all comes together so i will see you there shortly This show is dedicated to creating wholeness and satisfaction through higher education. I recommend you go back into the app and subscribe to the podcast. The very nature of the spiritual path is cultivating an experience that lifts you up. And this small step can do just that. You can also discuss your insights and the subject matter with friends. Thank you for listening and for cultivating wisdom. Thank you.